I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Today on the podcast, LaShawn and I are talking about issues of racism and white supremacy and the ways they are deeply embedded into our textile industries and communities. This country and the world and all of us are reacting to the murder of George Floyd and so many other black people at the hands of the police. White folks are being called upon to deeply examine and work at rooting out the racism in ourselves and our families and communities. And it is work I am committed to staying focused on in my personal life and in this business. LaShawn and I have had a few phone conversations recently about how we want to bring these conversations onto the podcast and into our weaving community. And we decided on our last call that we should record one of these conversations to share transparently with our listeners what we have been thinking about. I am deeply appreciative of LaShawn's interest in and willingness to talk about this so openly on this platform. If you are new to our podcast, I encourage you to listen to two earlier episodes where LaShawn shares her story and journey as an artist and farmer, and a number of her other episodes where she explores the history and present realities of farming and processing cotton and indigo in the United States. You can see all of the episodes of the podcast at www.gistyarn.com slash podcast. One last thing before we start. Conversations like this bring up lots of feelings, and we know our listeners will have lots of reactions. To put it bluntly, white folks, if you are struggling with something you hear here, you are more than welcome to email me at sarah at gistyarn.com and we can discuss. Please do not take your questions or burdens and definitely not any complaints to LaShawn directly. It is not her work to do in the world or her job at GIST to be dealing with that with you. If you have something supportive to say, you are welcome to share it directly with LaShawn. Her email address is LaShawn at gistyarn.com. And I think from there, we should dive right in and start with some introductions. Hi, LaShawn. Hi, Sarah. So we are coming on to this Weave podcast of ours today to have a conversation about race and about racism Um, and the ways that we see those impacting um, ourselves and our business and our textile industry and community. We're recording this on June 11th of 2020. Um, And I think we will just introduce ourselves briefly um, for folks that are newer to our podcast, and then we're going to dive into this candid conversation together. Um, My name is Sarah Resnick. I am the owner of Just Yarn and Fiber, which is the the weaving yarn shop. And um, I co-host this podcast with LaShawn, and I am a white woman. And my name is LaShawn Moore. I am an interdisciplinary artist. I focus mainly on textiles, and I do a lot of research around contextualizing textiles through history associated specifically with my ancestry, which is that of being a Black American woman. I am a grower, farmer. I hope to one day have my forever farm, but right now I am growing on a smaller scale, I'm specifically growing naturally colored cottons that I have sourced seeds that were specifically grown 
by enslaved Africans as well as indigenous cultures. I also grow indigo, sufruticosa, which I sourced from a plantation as well. For me, growing those crops represents two things. The first thing that it represents for me is researching and understanding my history and where I come from. Um, I'm not only a black American woman who is a, a direct descendant of slavery, but I do have family that is from South Carolina. My great grandmother was actually born on Paris Island. Another one of my grandparents grew cotton and grew up on a cotton farm. Um, it was her family farm. And also my grandfather was a sharecropper. And so there's an entire history there that I investigate with the work that I do. And while I am having a conversation that is linked personally to my ancestry and my upbringing and my history, it also is something that I use as a catalyst to have a much larger conversation about agriculture in America, race in America, and the way the two interplay, and how that ultimately reaches and in its own way has sort of spilled into textiles and the textile industry. Um, and also, since I'm already kind of going into the direction of talking about this, I also wanted to talk about what kind of inspired the aspects of the podcast that I contribute to and in the interviews that I have with people. When Sarah invited me to join this podcast, I believe that it had a lot to do with the research that I was already doing and the work that I had started. She wanted me to bring in conversations with farmers for me, I thought that this would be a wonderful opportunity to create, I guess, a resource for generations to come who are interested in a lot of the things that have been difficult for me to find information on. I think for me, something that is really astounding is that I see artist manifestos, um, agricultural manifestos that talk about things that are relevant today. And these are things that have been written in the 60s and 70s. And I think that when I first started to think about agriculture as being something that could empower people, something that could help heal people, um, something that teaches people self-sustainability, which I think is key, especially in any form of revolution, but I think specifically in the revolution that we're looking for today, I think agriculture is going to play an incredibly critical role in that. But I think that creating a resource for people to tap into, they don't have to start from the beginning. They don't have to do as much legwork to try to figure out, well, how do I get indigo sufruticosa seeds? Or what is the exact variety that the enslaved people grew and what are the grow methods that are necessary? If you all listened to the previous episode that was a solo cast, I was talking about how it, I literally planted three times in order to get my seeds to germinate because I did not know how to get them to germinate. And then I finally had a conversation with a farmer through the podcast that was like, no, you need to boil them, bury them very gently lightly cover them with soil and they'll germinate and that could have saved me a lot of seeds <laughs> and, and a lot of time and so for me it's that 
Um, it's, it's almost like creating something that will allow us to pass the torch. I think you have been doing that in your work and in this podcast so beautifully and honestly and importantly. And um, yeah, in the show notes to this episode, I think we should link to some of those other conversations that you've had with farmers. I think in some sustainable agriculture communities and kind of sustainable textile communities, among white folks, there can be a lot of messaging about back to the land, back to the way things were, kind of glorifying made in America and completely ignoring the histories of enslavement and segregation in the in the United States that really were leading to all of this. Um, and, you know, obviously with cotton and with textiles and with indigo which are what you focus some of those episodes on and in the work on, I think you do a really good job of laying the things that our country needs to reckon with bare um, for people to listen to and grapple with while also reclaiming them yourself. And I learn a lot from you and, and from those episodes and seeing how you interact with those topics. Yeah, and I think for me also something that became really apparent to me when I started having these conversations and I started to do research to try to find people to come on the podcast as guests is that there aren't a lot of Black people, specifically Black American people, who are working in this way because of that stigma. The history and the things that have happened in this country, whether it be slavery, segregation, or Pickford versus Glickman, which was the civil suit that found the USDA guilty of discriminating against black farmers, like whether it be all of those things throughout the generations that have caused black people to leave the land because of the trauma or because they were pushed out, there isn't a lot of us in agriculture, which also leads to a lack of representation of us in agriculture as well. In addition to that, textiles. And so you have a series of layers and levels of things that create barriers. A large part of the reason why the work that I do focuses on my personal history is because it kind of has to. If you look at the way, the conversations that people are having now, surrounding race and discrimination in this country, I feel like there is a large portion of it that is having a conversation about the way race and discrimination lives in our society, but not how it actually lives and exists in the lives of Black people. For me, it would be impossible to have a conversation about cotton without recognizing the history. For me, it would be impossible for me to have a conversation about indigo and not have a conversation about the history. For me, it would be impossible to have a conversation about agriculture and it not be about the history because it is my history. There's no way that I can really delineate from the conversation. It's embedded in who I am. And I don't think people really understand what that means, especially those who don't walk in their shoes. And so um, the conversation has to be had. Black people, we have to do so much just to exist in ways that other people don't even have to think about. Just even having this conversation alone 
and having to contextualize things can often feel very patronizing depending on the audience, um, depending on the audience's uh, level of knowledge because riddled within that is also the reality that people also just don't know the history. A lot of people really don't know the history and don't understand a lot of where these things come from. And by these things, I mean literally what happened during slavery. We've been educated on some of the violence, but we haven't been educated on what the violence did. We haven't really had discussions about PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome and how that's permeated throughout the generations. We have, you know, really intense conversations about racism and we understand that calling someone an expletive is racist, but people don't understand colorism, which is um, a part of racism and affects its discrimination based on skin tone or featureism, which is discrimination based on physical features and, you know, all of these other things that allow racism to live in various forms and various aspects. And so... I think that although I'm not directly talking about things like colorism and featureism, um, I'm doing my best to contextualize the history so that we can have genuine and sincere conversations that will lead to changes in that field and in those aspects. Yeah, I I just want to really appreciate you for saying all of that and for sharing those and acknowledging that we have well it's a podcast we don't know exactly who is listening but we we know that there is a diverse audience and that a lot of our audience is white folks and I know you put a lot of extra energy into teaching about things that we should already know um and that shouldn't be your job and that is a harm that is replicated in all sorts of communities and businesses where it falls to black folks to educate white folks and we we risk replicating that harm um in this podcast and in in this conversation and also you and i decided we wanted to have this conversation anyways to share with our audience so i i just want to appreciate you for doing that Lashawn. Thank you. I I appreciate that. And also, I just want to say, like, to people listening, this is a very uncomfortable conversation to have. It's not necessarily uncomfortable for me because I've been here a lot, but I think that I've been here and I've had experiences that have led me to understand why it is so important to speak up and why it is so important to say something. Because, you know, as you said, a lot of people are unaware of the harm. A lot of people don't know. It's interesting because I think a lot of it has to do with um, the two sides of America. And I was talking about this with my mom actually last night. There's this thing called the talk. It starts... A lot of times, I guess, when you go from maybe being a kid to a teenager and you do start taking history classes and you do learn about the history, probably don't understand a lot of those things until you turn 18, 19, 20, when you're in the world and you can start to see and experience, you know, racial microaggressions and you can start to see things a bit differently. 
But all of those years up until you became or gained that awareness, you're probably looking back at a lot of things and going, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe this person said that to me. And, you know, it's just really important for people to understand that this is a reality, you know, in a lot of the the things that I've seen or the people who've reached out to me um, once things kind of came to a head with the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of, um, it just, for me, it just seems like there's a lot of people who are showing concern for what's happening. And what's interesting to me is that this has kind of been a permeating feeling for a very long time for me. Like none of what's happening really feels new. If anything, it's heightened. Just to like give a bit of a a story or background for when I first kind of started to see the the difference between my experience as a black American specifically and not just like different from white Americans or white people but also just people of color in America was when Donald Trump became president I remember that day it was a really sad day the sun did not shine. I have fell asleep before I could see the final poll results. And um, I had woke up that morning and I told myself I would not look at my phone until I got myself to work because I was scared. Because I had a feeling before I went to sleep when I saw how many votes he had that it was not going to be good. And I got on the train. I overheard people talking about it. Um, and then I got to work and then I finally looked and I saw that he had won. The way that everyone felt so defeated um, and felt so taken back and, and, and people were just so sad and they just couldn't believe it and everyone was so angry and whether it was, you know, a conversation with a woman who was advocating for women's rights or if it was a person who came from a background of immigration, whether it be from a, a Latin country, an Asian country or a European country there was just this overwhelming feeling of sadness amongst people for me it was kind of like this is the America that me and my family have always known like this is this is what it's always felt like we always understood what this country is and what it stood for and what it was built on and why it's important for us to be active in making sure that when the new version of whatever was created when the foundation was laid decides to reiterate itself, we're being diligent about stopping it and not allowing it to go any further. It has to be really telling for people that America had its first black president And then directly after it got Donald Trump, even after we had a black president and there was this whole conversation about how we were a post-racial society, we get the exact opposite for president. And then we have an influx of white supremacist groups showing up around the country. You know, it's uh, it says a lot. But again, this is not new to me. This, this this is not anything that I've never understood. And the threat or impending gloom of America has never really been something that has been absent from my life. It's something that I've learned to live with. Yeah. So another thing that I want to make sure we get into in this conversation and that I 
have been thinking about are the ways that our business and my leadership in this business has fallen short. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that all of the yarn that we buy from the United, from within United States sources is, to my knowledge, entirely by mills that are owned by white people. And uh, you and I have had some conversations about the structural reasons that there are so little and in some cases no black ownership of industrial scale textile production um, in the United States. So much of it is related to slavery and segregation and also uh, lack of access to capital and money because um, banks refuse to loan money. And these are extremely capital intensive kinds of businesses. And that is the industry and the country that we live in. And I know that there is still more that we could be doing to spend our money in ways to lift up black makers and to support it all black farmers and other folks that are making textiles. It's something I'm really cognizant of as I think about our marketing. Um, we are really focused on made in the United States. That's also something that I think Donald Trump has somewhat co-opted and it ha- I feel like we have to be careful with the way that we talk about why we're supporting Made in the U.S. um, to really distinguish from the way that that movement has been co-opted. I think it is good for us to support domestic um, production and that we should have the abilities to produce fiber on farms and to manufacture it in our country for all sorts of reasons, but not because not for xenophobic reasons, not because we shouldn't be supporting other countries, but because we need that infrastructure in our own communities. And the textile infrastructure and industry and communities has been a huge part of enforcing slavery and then segregation and economic and racial disparities. So, you know, it's it's kind of easy, and I think we have fallen into this trap of marketing this in an easy way of, like, our yarn is made in the U.S., it's supporting domestic producers, you know, kind of full stop. And um, we haven't done a good enough job, I think, outside of your episodes on the podcast, but just in general in our messaging, to talk about the, the terrible parts of textile processing in this country and to not gloss over the history and the present of that. It's something I don't know exactly how to do. It's kind of straddles the line between the the content sharing part of our business with this podcast and with some parts of our blog where I feel like it's it's more purely about sharing our um, sharing the stories of people we want to share versus the marketing, which is about selling a product and we have to sell that product to, to make the money to do everything we do and our customers um, I think are showing that they are interested in in deeper stories and I think I just need to figure out how better to integrate that into the whole way that we message about domestic production mm. yeah I I agree I think a large part of the difficulty in having these conversations is not having people to have the conversations with. I did also want to just throw in a bit of history because I was able to find 
the first Black-owned mill, but also I believe it's the only one that has ever existed because I have not been able to find another Black-owned mill in America. Um, But I could be wrong. If anyone does know of another one, please write into us. So the first Black-owned mill was founded by Warren C. Coleman, and it was called the Warren C. Coleman Mill in Conrad, North Carolina. The mill's owner, Warren C., was a former slave. He secured funding and loans to start his mill. He started the mill, and then shortly after, he couldn't financially sustain the mill, and it ended up being bought by another businessman, which was a white man. The mill does still stand. It still exists. Um, It's not being used currently, but throughout the years, there have been other businesses that have occupied the space. I don't believe any of those businesses were Black-owned, but that's kind of the reality of Black ownership and Black entrepreneurship, especially uh, throughout the generation. So I believe that this mill opened in 1901 and it was closed in 1904. And it was because of a lack of financial backing. You also have to contextualize that year. What year was 1904? This was a Black man owner of something in 1904, which was not that long after slavery as he was a former slave. And this is also, what, five or six decades before we even had the civil rights movement. And that that was the last time we had an institution such as that. So it's important to understand why that is, how that happened, the difficulties of having a business in that frame of time, but also... Um, You know, shout outs to him for having the courage, I mean, to go from being an enslaved person to starting a mill. I mean, that is phenomenal. That is amazing. And although it didn't work out, ultimately, it goes to show one, I think, the strength and resiliency of our ancestors, but also that the change or that the discrimination that has happened in this country is not linear. It, it it didn't like start at one place and then got better and better and better and better and better and better. It got okay, then it went poorly, then it got better, then it got okay, then it went poorly, then it got better. And then it, you know, it's not really something that just happens overnight. And within that is you know, there has to be a conversation about the nuances, the times, the understanding of the economics of the American financial system. As you were talking about with Black entrepreneurship and supporting Black businesses, a part of the reason why it has been difficult for Black entrepreneurship and Black businesses to even get off the ground is because of the American economic system, which is disproportionately less inclusive of Black folks because of the generational wealth gap. And so where that generational wealth gap happens is at the same time that black slaves were freed, there was financial reprieve for slave owners and then uh, low income white people were then prioritized for jobs and positions to create more opportunity for low income white people and black slaves were kind of just left 
to fend for themselves and the only skills that they really had were the skills and trades that they learned as slaves and that's why they were farming but you have to think about you know what happened when slaves were freed it was illegal to teach slaves to read even though there were slaves who did learn how to read, uh, there was a large population of people who did not have an education um, and so did not have the means. There's a text called Slavery and the Making of American Capital. It's a really great book and it better chronicalizes what I'm attempting to point to and it's about how America's economy was based on slavery. So the early settlers came to America, they stole the land from Native Americans, and then what they did was they built the American economy off of slave labor. And so all of the institutions that we have in America, especially the older ones with lots of money, they're all benefiting from slavery. They're all benefiting from slave labor, all of them. That is the beginning of money and capitalism in America. It's taken generation after generation to try to, or I don't even want to say try. It's taken generation after generation to work with that really, really huge setback in order to get to the point where we can have the same things that other people in this country have been afforded to have that don't have those setbacks. So in addition to just like financially not having the, the the things that are needed, we weren't allowed to go to certain schools, college education. We weren't allowed to work particular positions and those particular positions paid more. And so while maybe there's a 60-year-old African-American person who in comparison to a 60-year-old Caucasian person, um, and you look at their life financially, it's going to be different because that's what a generational wealth gap is. So I've said all of that just to kind of explain why it's important for people to understand the importance of supporting black businesses and black entrepreneurship and spending your dollars that way. If you understand the discrimination and you think that racism is wrong, then you also, you know, another way to protest is to use your dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to acknowledge the flip side of of everything you're saying as a as a white business owner i think it can be really tempting for people like me and for me to think you know i saved hard and i was able to bootstrap this business and and blah 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 and the the reality is that the reason that i was able to save the $5,000 that we used to start this business. And even more than the actual cash, the reason I was able to take the risk to jump into entrepreneurship is because I had savings and I had the knowledge that my family had savings and that I was going to be okay if this didn't work out. And I know that is, it's kind of impossible to calculate the benefit of just that, of of having that backing and having that savings to be able to jump into entrepreneurship um, is what has allowed this business to grow, is what has allowed my own financial stability to grow. And um, yeah, that, you know, $5,000 is something that many, many people of color 
cannot even access. Um, and that's because of generational wealth gaps and racism and segregation and slavery. And I think also just to kind of relate that whole conversation specifically to my entrepreneurship endeavor is although I come from uh, generations of farmers and landowners, there's really no land ownership left in my family. And so finding land has been difficult. Uh, Finding the capital has been difficult. Um, Where I live in South Carolina, although I do have access to a lot of land, it's very underdeveloped. Uh, so yes. (laughs) I think we've dived into a lot of different parts of this and, um, we should link to some of these resources in the, in the book that you mentioned in the show notes. And yeah, I just, I really want to appreciate you again for diving into yourself to share things with us and with me. Yeah. Is is there anything else that you think we should discuss about this or about how we're thinking about the podcast moving forward? Something that also, and I actually had this conversation with the previous podcast guest. It's like weaving is also a form of textile art that can create barriers for people as well. Because weaving is very expensive. It's the most expensive textile art. Looms are very expensive, um, depending on what size loom you get. Um, You can make a frame loom, and and those are gorgeous and wonderful. But also, floor looms are very expensive and hard to come by. You have to have space, and then you also have to have time. And things like that also are only afforded to certain people as well. I guess I'm just saying that to say that it's it's really important to to do the work and to think critically and to not shy away from the discomfort that you may have speaking up or standing up or recognizing that something is not okay. I think a lot of people in this moment are very confused about what they can do, what they should do, what they can say, what they shouldn't say. And I would just say that like as people, we're far more productive at creating change when we change when we make the changes at home, when we work on ourselves and when we work in our immediate surroundings. So if you're at a dinner table and you hear someone say something, speak up. If you are at a store and you see someone do something, speak up. Read the books and read the things that people have been putting out for centuries that have been valuable resources to people. You don't have to be of a particular background or race to learn about another culture. And I think that because so much of American culture relies on Black American culture, I think that everyone should really be educating themselves on blackness in America. The black history that I learned was given to me from my mother and my grandparents. It was not anything that I learned in school. And so if I had to learn it at home and it was only because my community was black, then that means that people who are learning the history are only learning it at school and that's it. And the history, the way the history books tell it is 
not just wrong it's it's honestly like part of the reason why we're so far behind in these conversations so um yes we will definitely link to all of the text and uh, articles that we talked about in this conversation yeah and you've mentioned books in this conversation that i haven't read and i am looking forward to buying and reading those books and you also were talking earlier about um some of the reasons that weaving is exclusive um, related to money and related to time. And those are also things I think the leadership, my leadership of this business has fallen short with in thinking about ways that we can actively address um, and be part of the majority of the designers that we share um, in our community of people who are designing projects are not black and I don't have a way of knowing the race of our customers but I know that we could do a lot more um, to make weaving tools and yarn accessible and I know firsthand and also from hearing from our customers like how deeply healing access to art making and textile making and yarn and tools is um, our business should be doing a better job of making that accessible for more people and that's also something that I have been thinking about how to fix as we continue on mm-hmm. and um, also, I just want to add for the people who are listening to this who are black or are people of color, if you do feel burdened or heavy about having these conversations and these topics or just the conversation around materials, like something that has helped me in my journey is to understand that the only way out is the way through. That just means that it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult, but there is healing towards the end. There is something for me about this work and this practice that has been very restorative and I encourage anyone who is feeling that way to sit with it and make your way through. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think, uh, I think that's, um, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think we have a lot here for people to listen to. There's a lot here for me to think about. And um, yeah, so much gratitude for you, LaShawn. Thank you. I appreciate it. And um, also, you know, I'm thankful for all of the people who've educated me and have been critical aspects of me even having the courage to speak up and to deal with a lot of these things head forward shout outs to my ancestors shout outs to the long line of educators (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. family who have kind of taught me to be this person Um, And also anyone who listens to this, if you have some interesting constructive feedback uh, or something positive to say, feel free to reach out. Yeah. Okay. I think we should leave it with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that's a wrap. That's a wrap. (laughs) 